You may be seated. And uh, our text this morning is in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And if uh, you don't have a Bible and you need one, just uh, slip up your hand and I'll make sure that someone provides you with one. Hebrews chapter 2. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say it was the Apostle Paul. Some say it was a man by the name of Apollos. doesn't really matter. The person who wrote it was carried along by the Spirit of God. And ultimately, these are the words of God. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 14 and 15. Hear the word of God this morning. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Father God, thank you for this word this morning, and thank you so much that you did send one to come and deliver us from the power of death, to deliver us from the devil. God, I pray for the preaching of the word this morning that you would guide Pastor Steve as he speaks to us, Lord, and I pray for our hearts that you would help us to receive what you have for us, receive it with gladness and and with joy, And uh, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to understand how your word applies to our life situation right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, Deemer. Good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a good um, Sunday morning and that you're looking forward to this Christmas week. I know that the Christmas season can sometimes be stressful. And that it's unfortunate that at this time of the year, we tend to get more distracted from God than any other time of the year when it should be the opposite. This should be the time that we are more focused on Christ than any other time of the year. Joy, that's the final candle that we lit today on the outer part of the wreath, the candle of joy that the Ellis has lit for us. And, um, you know, if there's any area in my life, one area in my life that God has really stretched me and grown me and taught me over the past 10 years of ministry, it's been in my understanding of, in my application of, in my pursuit of joy. Because there's a lot of counterfeits out there. And there's a lot of counterfeits that slide their way into the Christian life as well. And we are taught, sometimes simply by our fleshly desires, but sometimes accidentally by the church, that joy is found in the wrong places. And in reality... We are to be people who pursue happiness, to, who pursue joy. Just like the, um, um, what is it, that the, is it the Declaration of Independence that says um, that everyone's entitled to the pursuit of happiness? Do I have that right, homeschool moms? Anybody? Make sure I'm right. Okay, Declaration of Independence. Okay, the pursuit of happiness. You remember we did a series entitled that about a year ago? We are to pursue happiness. We're to pursue joy. But we're to find it in the right place. This time of the year... There's a lot of counterfeits out there. Our culture is skewed by the counterfeits. Uh, it's ironic that this time of the year, this season, that's meant to originally be focused on the birth of the one who is joy in the flesh, has instead become a season of counterfeit joys of the flesh. And that's the challenge that we face every year at this time. There's the joy of toys, the joy of stuff, the joy of food, and there's some good food back there. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those joys. We can enjoy those things. The problem is when these blessings become our source of joy or the focus of our joy, 
that become counterfeits of what the real joy should be. There's some other really good joys of this season, aren't there? There's the joy of family. My in-laws are in town, and I'm thankful. They're just like my own parents. I love having you guys here, and I'm not just buttering them up here. I really love having my in-laws in town. Ross is back there shaking his head. Sure, I do. I do. And uh, I love having family. I love being around family. We've got um, Heather's brother coming in town the middle of this week. And uh, we just love having people at our house, especially family, as often as we can, especially during the holiday time. So there's joy of family, joy of friends, joy of serving. On December 25th, Christmas Day, we will gather together. Several of us families will gather together. We'll go serve the firemen, fire people in our community. We're going to go serve them by taking them snacks and gifts on Christmas Day. Uh, and that's just, that's a joy. And all of these things are good, but they're incomplete, they're insufficient. If we don't go to the source of our joy, if we don't go to the fountain of our joy, the originator of our joy, Jesus himself. One of the verses that the Ellis has read was John 15, 11. It says this, These things I have spoken to you, this is Jesus speaking, that my joy may be in you. Now what's Jesus' joy? Jesus' joy is his communion with the Father and serving the Father and perfectly being obedient to the Father. That's joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's that communion with the Father. And Jesus says, he has told us these things. He's spoken his word to us so that his joy, his communion, his, his um, abiding with the Father, that joy that comes from that can be in us and that your joy may be full or complete. And that's what we're after. Full joy, complete joy, which is found only in Christ. This is a deeper, God-centered, Christ-focused, spirit-wrought joy. It doesn't ebb and flow with the ups and downs of life. It doesn't abandon us when things turn difficult. It doesn't diminish with time. It remains, it springs forth as the fruit of the very presence of God's Spirit in our lives. This is real joy. This is the joy of Christmas. And everybody loves the Christmas story, don't they? Everybody just loves the Christmas story. Even, even people who, who don't embrace Christ as Lord and Savior love the Christmas story. Unless you're a hardcore secularist who just doesn't want manger scenes anywhere in the country, most people like the Christmas story because it's, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's about a baby and there's these angels and there's these shepherds. And, and if you just forget about the part where Herod slaughters a bunch of children, other than that, it's just a beautiful story and everybody likes the Christmas story. Just like everyone likes Pictures of babies, right? That's why everyone loves the Christmas story. I've got some pictures of some babies this morning. There's some famous babies up there. Now, the problem with just loving pictures of babies is that we really can't tell what that person's life is going to be. We don't know. You look at a picture of a baby, you know, you don't know what the outcome of that person's life is. And so it's incomplete just to focus on the baby. And this morning, I want to say it's incomplete for us just to focus on on the cradle. We've got to have more of the story in mind. If Christmas is really going to flow out of us and give us joy, then we can't just focus on the cradle. Now, who are these babies? Everyone thinks those are cute babies. Agreed. Maybe with the exception of the one on the bottom left. That was kind of an ugly baby. But top, <laughs> top left, top left. Can anyone guess who that baby is? Right. That's Barack Obama. Now, when that picture was taken, I'm sure that uh, they had no idea that he would one day be president of the United States. So let's go to the next one. Now that's, that's a good picture of babies, president right now. Over on to the top right, that's just perhaps the cutest picture up there. 
What a cute baby. People look at that picture and think, oh, that's just going to, this kid's going to be a wonderful kid. Anybody have any idea what baby that is? What do you think? You forgot. Anybody? Huh? No? Well, yes. It sort of. That's Osama bin Laden. The top right corner is a baby picture of Osama bin Laden. I had to search hard to find that. Got that off an Arabic website. I hope the FBI doesn't come after me, all right? That's, that's Osama bin Laden. Seriously, I couldn't read the website. It just had all these stuff, but it was a picture, and it did say Osama bin Laden baby, so I downloaded it. All right. I need to go run to those cleaners to clear all those cookies off my computer, right? Okay. No one could have, now that's the cutest baby in the world, right? Just cute. No one, you don't know the whole story. Not so cute anymore. Bottom left, I bet you can figure out who this one is. Because he looked the same. All you got to do is put a little mustache right here. That's Adolf Hitler. He doesn't look any different. He was ugly as a baby. He's ugly as an adult. All right? And the bottom right, anybody have any idea who that is? No. (laughs) Who said that? Isaac? No. No. They actually had color photography, Isaac, when I was born. Believe it or not. Anybody. The bottom right corner is probably one of the most popular people around today and has done so much for the kingdom of God. That's Billy Graham, the bottom right corner. That's baby Billy Graham. So we only know part of the story when you see the baby picture. And so this morning, I want us to think about the picture of the birth of Christ. And we've got the manger picture up there, the cradle. And we love the, form, the, the, the warm, fuzzy story of Christmas, but it's not full. It's not full unless we also have something else in the picture. So today, we're also going to be talking about the cross. The cradle and the cross. That's the title of the message today. The cradle and the cross. I dare say that we cannot understand the cradle without the cross. We cannot make sense of the cradle without the cross. We cannot fully embrace the cradle without the cross. And we cannot enjoy the cradle without the cross. The joy will be incomplete if we don't have the whole picture. So for your notes today, adults, here's your bottom line. We cannot wholly understand or rejoice in Christmas if the cradle and the cross are not fully in view. That's the bottom line for today's message. So if you forget everything from this point forward because you're really worried, it's in your mind right now that Steve's going to get hunted down by Arabic radicals or something, okay, At least remember the bottom line. We cannot wholly understand or rejoice in Christmas if the cradle and the cross are not fully in view. So I want us to take a look at these two verses of Scripture that Deemer already read this morning that encapsulate these two grand pictures of who Jesus is. Now the context of this beautiful passage is that it's speaking of us being Christ's brothers. We are brothers with Christ because we've been adopted into the family of God. We've been made co-heirs with the Son. This this passage speaks of how that happened, how Christ did that, how he suffered on our behalf, how he now stands as our high priest making propitiation for our sins, that only those who belong to Christ and have received his righteousness and his payment applied to our lives for our sins, only those people can rightfully be called children of God. It's very popular, especially at this time of year, to talk about everybody being children of God. We're all God's children. Well, not technically. 
I think you can look at it in a way, yes, because God is the creator, therefore we are all his children. But biblically speaking, those who are the children of God are those who've been adopted into his family as co-heirs with Christ, brothers with Christ. And that's what this passage is all about. So let me read it again and then focus in on a few things. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So I want us to focus on the first part of this verse. It says, Therefore the children... Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same thing. This is the cradle story. This is the part of the story that's the cradle. Christ partaking in flesh and blood. This is the Son, perfect, holy, righteous, all-powerful God himself, condescending to come in flesh and be a man. It's a miracle really beyond comprehension. You want to know where the greatest miracle in the world is? There's the resurrection. There's all these amazing miracles in Scripture. But I think the greatest miracle of all, maybe, maybe it compares, but there's us being saved, which I think is the, perhaps the greatest miracle of all, that us dead, hard hearts can be saved. But the fact that God himself, all-powerful, who can't be contained, comes incarnate in flesh and blood, that's an amazing miracle. And so that is the cradle, and that's what we see here. I want to point out a couple of words in this section of Scripture. It says that we share. We share in flesh and blood. That's the word. That word share comes from the word, the Greek word koinonia. And you're probably familiar with the Greek word koinonia because it means fellowship. So when we talk about in the church, we want the church to have koinonia. We want to have fellowship in the church. We want to uh, share things together. It means to share things in common. So when it says we share in flesh and blood, it means that we all have that in common. You have flesh, I have flesh, you have blood, I have blood. We all share in flesh and blood. And that's the word, koinonia. And so the Bible is very interesting here because the author of Hebrews, and and Demer's right, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. When he comes and he starts to talk about Christ, he uses a different word. Therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. So when he refers to Jesus, he uses the word partook. He partook of the same things. This word means taking hold of something that is not naturally one's own. Taking hold of something that is not naturally one's own or one's own kind. So when it says that Jesus partook in flesh and blood, it means the creator became the created. Became like the created in flesh and blood. The elements here this morning, they represent these things we're talking about. The blood The flesh, that's what these represent. So when you take communion, which we're going to do later in the service today, if you're a believer in Christ and you participate at the Lord's table and take communion, part of what you're doing, part of what you're remembering is that, that he did come. You're remembering the cradle. He came, he partook in flesh and blood. So we are going to partake in this a little bit later because he partook. He came in the cradle to partake in humanity. Philippians 2, 6-7 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. That's the glory of the cradle. Now this is the part of the gospel. Because like I said, the Christmas story is warm and fuzzy. This is the part of the gospel that everybody likes. Everyone loves to talk about how Jesus came for us. He came, 
right? This is the easy part of the gospel, that Jesus came. Emmanuel, God with us. But he came for a reason. He came for a purpose. These elements of communion, this ordinance that Christ gave us, is not merely symbols of his coming and partaking in flesh and blood. They represent something else. They represent the shedding of that blood and the shredding of that flesh. They represent the cross. They represent the cross. And so this morning, we have to focus on the cross as well. If you look at the rest of this passage, it says that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus partake? Why did he take hold of flesh and blood? He did it in order to break that flesh and to spill that blood for our deliverance and the defeat of death. The gore of the cross makes the cradle beautiful. The gore of the cross makes the cradle beautiful. He triumphed at the cross. The Bible says here that he might destroy the one who has power of death. You know, the, we, and you, you always hear as we're talking about the war that's going on in Afghanistan and in Iraq, that they're looking for weapons of mass destruction. That's become, that word was not in, that phrase was not in my vocabulary prior to 2001. Weapons of mass destruction. But now everyone knows what weapons of mass destruction is. At least they should, okay? The weapons of mass destruction. Well, Satan has a weapon of mass destruction, and it's called death. That's his primary weapon. Matter of fact, it's the best weapon of mass destruction because it affects everybody. And Satan has a weapon, and his weapon is to kill. If Satan had a mission statement, it would be this, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's Satan's mission statement. And so he has a powerful weapon, and it's called death. But when Christ came and he shed his own blood, and experienced death on the cross, he disarmed Satan. He undid death. Death is swallowed up in sweet victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Colossians 2, 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, Jesus has triumphed over Satan. He has disarmed Satan. He has undone Death And by triumphing over the devil and over death, he has set us free. Verse 15, and deliver, of of what we're reading here, verse 15 of, of Hebrews 2, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Everyone fears death. Every man who's ever been born and woman fears death. We spend our lives running from it. People spend millions of dollars to try to defeat it or to prolong the distance between now and then. People are scared of death. Found a funny quote. Woody Allen once said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Everybody's scared of death. Nobody wants to face it. But not so. It shouldn't be so for the believer. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not scared of death. Matter of fact, I look forward to what heaven's going to be like. I was spending some time this week in Revelation, just reading some of the passages near the end of Revelation and just letting my mind just kind of wander into these texts and think about the glories of heaven and what it's going to be like to be with Christ and to reign with Christ. And it's just, it's just amazing to try to comprehend those things. And so I look forward to that. That makes me excited. I just don't look forward to the way I get there, all right? So, I, you know, I'm always praying, God, just make it quick, whatever it is, you know. But it may not be the case for us, but we don't have to fear death. 
We don't have to fear death if you're a believer. If you've partaken in the flesh and blood of Christ by accepting him as Lord and Savior, then death no longer holds any sway over you. Matter of fact, Paul said to die is what? Gain. To live is Christ. In other words, you live this life. If you're a believer, you should, life should be Christ. In other words, everything you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. And so whether you're training horses or whether you're building sound booths or whether whatever you're doing, whoever does anything in this church or whether you're homeschooling kids, you do it all for the glory of Christ. To live is to live for Christ. Christ living through you, you are a minister. You're his hands, his feet, and you do your life for him. And to live, that's great. There's nothing better than that other than one thing. To die and to finally be with Christ in, in the flesh. To be with him in person. And that's much better. That's gain. And so we see this beautiful picture for believers that we don't have to be fearful of death. We're delivered from fear and we're set free from slavery. We're all born into slavery, born into sin. No man is truly free until he's been broken free from the bondage of sin. That's the beautiful picture of this passage. We are slaves... And Christ sets us free, but he doesn't just set us free. So here's a picture. There's someone in slavery, chained up. Christ breaks the chains, which is death, sets us free, but then brings us into his family and calls us a brother. That's amazing. What a beautiful picture we have in Scripture of what Christ has done for us. Every religion tries to deal with the sin problem and the death problem. Every religion in the world tries to deal with these problems. But man-made religions have no answer. Only God has the answer. Some religions believe that um, when you die, you're reincarnated, that you come back as something else. And it all depends on what you did in your previous life. So if you come back as a cricket, it's probably because you were a bad person before. Or if you come back as an amoeba, I don't know. But, you, you know, this, this cycle of reincarnating and, and people, these religions actually believe that people who are born into poverty are born there because they deserve it because of a previous life. It actually gives license to um, uh, discrimination. And that's what some religions teach. They, what is death? Well, death is just a cycle that goes on and on and on. And so you don't have to be afraid of it, but most people are terrified of it still because they never know. Have I done enough good to come back as something good? Or have I done too much bad and maybe I'm going to come back as this? Some religions teach that you simply have to adhere to strict principles and and, and, and God's keeping a, 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 a tally board in heaven, whether you've done good or bad. And you'll never know for sure whether or not you're going to go to heaven. You just got to hope. Hope that, hope that you came out on the right side. There's some people that are in Christian churches that teach and believe the same thing. That's not Christianity. That's false man-made religion. And so death is a fearful thing. How can we know if we've done the right thing? Some religions teach that if you do a certain act, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. For example, strap yourself with dynamite and blow up a bus full of infidels, and it's a guaranteed ticket to heaven. So people, men and women who are scared to death of death, are willing to strap themselves with explosives so they can get that ticket to heaven. And man-made religions lead to destruction and to death. Only the cross has the answer for our slavery to death and this is the reason for our joy because only the cross is about God coming to us every other religion is about figuring out a way to get to God figuring out a way to defeat death and in Christianity true biblical Christianity it's about God coming to us and God defeating death it's not about what we do it's about what he 
already did. That's the beauty of the cross, the cradle and the cross, God coming to us, God delivering us. And this is the reason for our joy. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. This is the reason for our joy. We were once slaves and now we've been adopted as sons. That's great joy. So the elements here, they represent the cradle and the cross. They represent the beautiful, fun, Christmas, fuzzy, Hallmark card cradle and the gory, R-rated cross. They represent both things. And at Christmas, we must remember both things. And we celebrate because God, through Jesus, triumphed over sin. So there's two more pictures I want to show us really quick. Oops, I went the wrong way. The cradle and the cross... And I want to add two more pictures to it because the reason Jesus triumphed, because he's God. He is God in the flesh. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16-17. So he's creator. So we're going to have a full picture of Christ this morning. The cradle, the cross, and creator. And also the Bible makes it clear that he is Lord of lords and King of kings according to Revelation 17, 14. And if you continue that Philippians passage I read before, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So we have to have the crown in focus as well. And that's who we celebrate at the communion table. Our creator God, who holds every atom together by his word, came as a baby boy in Bethlehem to a mother named Mary, to a father named Joseph. He grew up to be a man, perfect, righteous, holy, without sin, and was sacrificed that life on the cross for the payment of the sins of all those who had placed their faith in him. But he wouldn't remain there. He would rise again, triumphing over Satan, over sin, and reigning forever at the right hand of the Father. That's who we celebrate as we have the Lord's Supper here in a minute. That's the reason for the season. So, as we think about Christ partaking in flesh and blood, this morning we partake... In the Lord's Supper, we partake in the juice and in the bread that represent the flesh and the blood. First Peter, I mean Second Peter 1, verse 3 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to us his precious and very great promises, listen to this, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So now we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. What I'd like for one of our, Heather to do is go get our nursery workers out because we like to partake of the Lord's Supper communion as families. And uh, as she's bringing them in, I want to explain real quick how we do Lord's Supper here at Harbin's. It's a little bit different than maybe what you're used to. 
I think we can continue to do it like this in the short term, but as we get bigger, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But right now, the way we do this is I invite the head of each family. If, there's a, if the father's here in the home, from the home, then I ask him to come up and grab the elements for your family. One goblet of the grape juice and a piece of the unleavened bread for your family. And go sit down with your family. And we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together as families. But if you're here this morning uh, and your husband's not here, um, then come on up here as well and you take it for your family. Um, so this is the second here we will do this and partake of the Lord's Supper as the nursery workers come out. But right now, let's pray and ask God to reveal anything in our hearts that keep us from taking this in a worthy manner. Because the Bible's very, very strict about how we take the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word speaks of taking the Lord's Supper with a heart that's right. And it doesn't necessarily refer to taking it in what types of cups we drink it out of, what types of little pieces of bread we have, but you care more about the heart and the condition of our heart. So God, if there's anybody here this morning that has not received the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that you'd help them understand that this time is not for them. This is for believers who understand and who proclaim the blood and the flesh that Christ shed on our behalf. And Father, if there's any of us here this morning who are believers, but God, if we're not walking with you, if we're straying from you, if we're in habitual sin, if we're struggling in a way that's keeping us from having the right kind of testimony we should have as believers, then Father, perhaps we're not in the right place to take it this morning. So help us, Lord, to be willing to withhold and not take it if, we're, if our heart's not in the right place. Father, if we have sin that we just need to confess to you right now, Father, I pray that you would stir that up in us so we can confess our sin before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, we want you to be glorified in this time. We want you to be magnified. So, Lord, we ask now that you'd be with this time as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Heather's going to bring the um, preschoolers back in, I'm assuming they're coming soon. Um, I'll go ahead and invite the uh, representative from each family to come on up and grab the elements for your family and then have a seat and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. So y'all can go ahead and come up, a representative from each family. If the dad's here, I'd rather have the dad do it, but if he's not, then that's fine as well.
pray. Heavenly Father, as we partook in the bread, Father, I pray that you were honored and that we proclaimed the fact that Christ did shed his blood, but that he broke his body. That on that cross, his flesh was literally ripped, broken for us, taking the brunt of your wrath for our sake. Help us, Lord, to keep that in view because Christmas doesn't mean the same thing if we don't keep that in view. So, God, we pray that you are honored for the taking of the bread and now be honored as we drink the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul continues in verse 25. He says, in the same way, also he, Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in your families, go ahead and partake of the cup. Pray once more. Father, we read in the scriptures that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. What a glorious thing it is that the blood of bulls and goats don't need to be shed anymore because they're insufficient. They were insufficient in the Old Testament and they're insufficient today. They pointed toward a greater sacrifice a sacrifice that was sufficient. And as Jesus' blood ran out of his body, and as he breathed his last, he said, it is finished. So Father, I pray that you'd help us understand that by taking these elements, and by partaking in the Lord's Supper, we are in no way doing any sort of ritual that re-sacrifices you, Lord Jesus, but that we're just remembering, and that we're recognizing the glory of the fact that the sacrifice was sufficient, and complete. So help us, God, to live that way, to live with the cross in view as we celebrate the cradle this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so I light now the Christ candle. I know it's not Christmas, and we can't have a Christmas Eve service because we can't get the church, we can't get the school to open up on Christmas Eve and other reasons, but tonight, Today, we're going to go ahead and light the Christ candle in anticipation of this coming Thursday, or is it Friday? Friday, when we celebrate Christmas. So we light the Christ candle now, and uh, I want to close with a video I want you guys to watch about this great story. This is the story, the cradle and the cross. It starts with the creator, it ends with the crown, and it keeps on going from that point. And so we're going to sing a song here in a minute that Mark has prepared for us. The Bible says that after they did the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn. And they went on to the Garden of Gethsemane where the story of the cross kept on going. But we're going to sing a song here in a second. But I want us to watch this video 
as we think about this story of Christmas, how it is literally the greatest story ever told, and it's being told all around the world as we speak. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Así que iban todos a inscribirse, cada cual a su propio pueblo. También José subo a Nazaret, ciudad de Galilea, to Judea, to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Joseph musste sich dort einschreiben lassen, zu zahlen mit seiner Verlobten Maria, die eine Kind heiratet. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Plötzlich trat einen Engel Gates zu ihnen, und Gates Licht umstrahlten sie. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. Und daran werdet ihr in Eden das Kind lebt, in Windeln gewickelt, in eine Frühstückzippe. De repente apareció una multitud de ángeles del cielo, que alababan a Dios y decían, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. invite everyone to go ahead and bring your cups up to the front. Well, I hear we have a guest um, from Russia, uh, from Russia, um, Liana Dijelani's Dies. Um, so we're going to sing this song. Um, I wanted to get the, the translation in English up here. But the words in English are, King of glory, Lord Almighty, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. Um, let's sing that in Russian. You guys learned this last week. Um, let's go ahead and stand up as we sing this. God is a God of the 
You may be seated. Good singing. Just a couple of uh, quick things. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you to everybody who participated in, uh, in Operation Christmas Child. Um, we were able to collect 44 shoeboxes as a church for Samaritan.